Let's turn to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 6 to 10. Revelation 19, verse 6 to 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is a righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, you are uh, worthy of it all. From you came all things, and to you are all things. And we are, in a sense, in between that and trying to figure out uh, how to live more unto you and uh, how to understand more who you are and how to better behold uh, you for all that you are, worship you for all that you are. And this is just... Uh, Lord, a part of that, and and we we long for your spirit to come and teach us and open our eyes and hearts and um, draw us, these finite creatures, closer to you, the infinite God. It's something we can't do on our own. Uh, It's something we don't even desire on our own. Uh, But God, it must be you and through you alone. Uh, So Holy Spirit, come and help us. And, and teach us and, and fill uh, each and every one of us here. Uh, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage today uh, opens with the words, Then I heard. And that's to say this is a continuation of the previous passage where we saw uh, John hearing um, a voice coming from a great multitude, which are the saints, and they're crying out, Hallelujah! which means praise Yahweh, Hallel, praise be to Yah, is short for Yahweh, hallelujah. And our passage today is a continuation of that, and it actually crescendos to a louder hallelujah than, than before. Uh, verse 6 says, The voice of a great multitude was like the roar of many waters, which is similar to the previous passage description about this hallelujah. But it also says this, Like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And that's an interesting description added on there because that description was not attributed to the great multitude before, but only to the throne of heaven. Uh, We saw that in Revelation 4, verse 5, where it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So now, the sounds of the saints who are worshiping God are described in similar terms as the sound that we heard from the throne of God previously, from which came the judgments of God. And so this is more than saying this was really loud. This is implying, in a sense, that 
the, the righteous judgment of God and the people of God offering up righteous worship, they harmonize. They go together. They create a similar sound. Metaphorically speaking, they create a similar sound. When God brings his thunderous judgment, uh, brings his kingdom down to earth, the people of God thunderously rejoice and worship. And, and I know that you know and I know that that makes a lot of people in our culture uncomfortable, this um, language of, of judgments. It's maybe making some of you uncomfortable right now. Uh, so it might be helpful to remind you of something, that uh, the language of judgment is really a universal language. Judging is a universal behavior. Everybody judges. Uh, the people who may say, hey, don't be so judgy, are judging the judgy crowd. Everybody judges. It's inevitable. It's universal, um, unavoidable. The only question is whether one's judgment is true or false, whether it's made rationally or just purely emotionally, uh, whether it's judicious or prejudicious, uh, whether it's communicated respectfully or demeaningly, but everybody judges. As for Christians, we have built into our doctrine and, and our faith um, that we must be respectful and loving when we speak the truth. We have to speak the truth in love. We have to be gentle and, and humble even when confronting sin. Um, and we have to always take care to do it more rationally than emotionally. That's built into our faith. At the same time, when it does come to judgment language in the passages, the saints do not shy away from that, and they rejoice over it. The saints' response to God's judgment from his throne is an equally thunderous and loud, Hallelujah! Praise Yahweh. And, and then comes the rest of the passages. That's what I want to unpack for us from there find three more specific reasons that call for the saints' hallelujah from this passage. Okay, Hence the title, Three Calls for Hallelujah. Um, here's the three reasons. First, the saints are to sing hallelujah because God the Almighty reigns. Number one. Number two, the saints are to sing hallelujah because Christ is our glorious bridegroom. That's number two. Number three, the saints are to sing hallelujah because we have the testimony of Jesus. Okay? These three points. Because God the Almighty reigns, because Christ is our bridegroom, and because we have the testimony of Jesus. Okay? All right. Point number one, God the Almighty reigns. Right? Verse six, again, says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Okay? And maybe a couple questions we can ask here is, uh, mighty enough for what? Reign in what way? Okay. And, and we've been learning this, right, so far, that God will bring his might, his power, to conquer and subdue evil, put an end to all evil, all injustice, and all the subsequent suffering, sin, death. And he will remove every sickness, every disease, and every war. He will give his son's resurrection power to, to bear on his people fully. Um, so there's life eternal, peace eternal, love eternal in the end. 
does that maybe sound like it takes a lot of might to achieve? Yeah. It takes the might of God. Nothing less than the Almighty God to fully reign for all of this become reality. And so the people of God are not shying away from that um, because it is God's judgment upon all that is sinful and evil that brings this to reality. So rather than shying away, they harmonize with God. They, they see God's judgment on all that is immoral, um, and, they, and they praise Yahweh. Because they understand if, if these qualities are to reign over the earth fully and finally, God must put an end to evil and evildoers fully and finally. And guys, to be honest with you, uh, even having said that, that's not something I'm standing here feeling really comfortable about and, and really loving. I love this doctrine of the judgment of God. I don't. I think I'm also trying to believe this more and more and embrace this more and more. Not that um, in the end God will simply judge all that is wicked and sinful and evil, but that I am to rejoice over it. I, I have to become really worshipful whenever I think of that, that God will bring his judgment to bear on all that is evil. Here's maybe something that might be helpful. Uh, Miroslav Volf, he's a theologian at Yale. And Yale is by no means uh, a reformed institution, a very progressive in their theology. But I found this quote by this theologian very helpful. And he's speaking out of his own experience uh, growing up in uh, Yugoslavia, where he witnessed horrible things like ethnic cleansing, uh, horrible violence in, in Kosovo, firsthand. And he said, quote, In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Meaning if God doesn't ultimately bring his sword to bear on the sword of man or destroy those who destroy his creation, he's not worthy of our worship. That makes sense, doesn't it? Um, and that's coming from a, a very progressive theologian at Yale. He goes on to say this too. Uh, Wolf says that one of the reasons why we in our contemporary Western context find God's judgment too harsh or too extreme is really because we are too sheltered from all the evils around the world that demand and cry out for God's final judgment. Okay. We, we live a good life. Uh, and many people, most people throughout the history of the world had a greater problem with the grace of God than the wrath of God. They had a problem with the grace of God upon their oppressors, colonizers, and enslavers. And, and so their question wasn't so much, how can a good God send anyone to hell? Their question was, how can a just God send these people to heaven? And, and so then that means, Vol's point is, isn't it somewhat presumptuous of us then to kind of look at God through our cultural lens, only from our context, and say, God, you're too harsh? Um, we're speaking from our limited sensibilities and limited experiences and very, frankly speaking, sheltered um, experiences. I think he has a point there. 
And so this is why scripture is so essential and important to us because it stretches our our perspective, challenges our assumptions, and begins to conform our perspective to, to God's perspective more. And it reforms our worship accordingly as well. We should and we can worship God for his judgments and sing hallelujah, praise be to Yahweh, because the Almighty God will reign when he brings his judgment down to earth. Yes, you can and you should praise God and worship God for all the wonderful things that he's doing in your life, in your slice of human existence. That's good. But if that's all you're worshiping God for, you're, you're missing out. And you have to reform your worship now to conform more to this heavenly picture of worship where you look beyond that slice of intervention of God in your life to see what God is doing in the entire cosmos and sing hallelujah for that. For that reason, the Almighty reigns and he will bring his judgment to bear on the world and he will bring his new creation and make all things new. Okay. That's the first reason we're called to sing hallelujah here. The Almighty reigns. Um, second, the second reason is because Christ, the Son of God, is our bridegroom. Okay. Verse 7 says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So here we see that the, the ultimate purpose of God bringing his justice down to earth right, in its final permanent form is not justice for justice sake. It's not even justice for the sake of just recreating the world. Ultimately, it's leading up to this marriage between the Lamb and his bride, which is the church. Okay. And, and all throughout scripture, right, you, you would see um, God describing himself as the bridegroom of his people and use the metaphor of marriage in describing his relationship with, with Israel. And, and what, we, what we see there is when, whenever God draws near to his chosen, redeemed people, what happens? His people run away, right? Uh, they wander away from him through their own sin and rebellion, idolatry. And every time God tries to invest in his spiritual marriage, uh, the people of God run off with other lovers. And then whenever God would try to fix that marriage um, and bring his bride back, pursue her, forgive her, heal her, bind her wounds, she would heal some and then get a little bit better for a little while, and then she'll run off again, run back to her idols. And yet, strangely, God always chose to remain um, in this deeply dysfunctional relationship, committed to this um, unfaithful bride. Why? Why? And I think we see why in our passage today. Because one day, this dysfunction does come to an end. This love story has a happy ending, in other words. And how so? Um, take a look again what it says in verse 7. The marriage of the Lamb has come and, and what? His bride has made herself ready. Okay? What, what's changed now? The bride is now ready. Uh, she is truly ready to be wedded to the Lamb once and for all, to be a true, faithful bride 
to him forever. Okay. And the guarantee for this is given to us in verse 8. What is the guarantee? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted to her. Now, first of all, what does fine linen symbolize? We've seen this uh, worn by the, the seven angels coming out of the sanctuary. Uh, also, in Revelation 3, the lamb speaks to his church, the bride, and says, I counsel you to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, sh- and, sh- and of the shame of your nakedness uh, so that that may not be seen. And here, it appears again, and now more fully as a wedding dress for the bride, which symbolizes the glorified state of the saints, the, the perfected state of the saints. It's the totally sinless, perfected, resurrected bride, the church. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.30, those who have been predestined have been called, and those who have been called have been justified, and those who have been justified have been glorified. This is the glorified state at the wedding of the Lamb, the final, whole, complete people of God. And it says it's been granted to them. Right? Everything was granted to them. This kind of justification, this kind of sanctification, this glorification was granted to them, meaning it was all by the grace of God. None of it was earned through their works. So uh, the verse goes on to say, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Give him the glory. Because he's been faithful. He's persevered. He remained committed to this marriage. He was steadfast. And so give him the glory and sing hallelujah. Um, And the bridegroom is here now, wedded to his bride to be with her once and for all. Therefore, praise him. Celebrate him. Christianity, I think, is the only religion that says this, right? Where um, you have at the very climax of human history or the end of human history where you see that the purpose of the universe is the Son of God marrying finite fallen creatures who have been chosen, called, forgiven, and made perfect. And now the Son of God will dwell with this bride for the rest of his eternity. Think about that. Okay. Uh, the triune God, who is all self-sufficient in and of himself, right, now chooses to add a sort of a fourth entity to be with them for all eternity, and that's the bride of Christ. It's not just our eternity that's redefined. God's eternity is now redefined uh, by bringing us into the picture. And it's not because somehow he really needed us. Uh, he just could not have heaven without us. No, he could have had heaven without us. Out of his sheer mercy and grace, free gift of his love, he chose us and he called us and he's going to marry us, the church. This is also something that has to be infused into our worship, our hallelujah as well. Making our worship not so much about what we, the bride, has been doing for the bridegroom, but what the bridegroom has granted to the bride once and for all, for all eternity. We are to sing hallelujah for that. Praise Yahweh for what he has granted us by his grace alone, what we receive through faith in him alone. So give him all the glory. To him be the glory alone. Celebrating that and that this joy of the bridegroom who's brought the bride home, that has to be an essential part of our worship. 
That's the second reason for our hallelujah, to celebrate not so much how well we are doing as the bride, but how, how awesome is this bridegroom? How successful is he? How saving is he on behalf of the bride? That's what our worship is essentially about, what our hallelujah should be about. Okay, and then it's as if this heavenly hallelujah song comes to the bridge. And if you, if you, you know, understand kind of how bridges work, often how it works is it kind of throws you off into this slightly minor key, um, taking you off from the major key and just taking a little intermission, if you will, from the majority of the song and focusing on something slightly different but thematically the same until you come back to the chorus again. This is, a, this is the bridge, and we're hitting a kind of a minor key here. Um, and, and because this part of the passage is almost like half, half of our passage today, we're going to spend some time considering this. This third call for hallelujah is more so a, of a how not to hallelujah and kind of a warning and a cautionary note about our hallelujah. We have to make sure we're holding on to the true testimony of Jesus. And when we neglect that, um, the message from God is not keep on singing hallelujah, but stop. Uh, notice, starting from verse 9, the angel is now speaking more directly to John, right? The man who's having this vision in his prison cell on the island of Patmos. And it's like we're zooming out for a moment from the vision to see kind of the the author of this letter having the vision, right? So we're kind of getting a zoomed out bird's eye view of that. And the angel says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is what we just talked about. These are the true words of God. And at that, right, John is so in awe and he's so incredibly moved in this moment that he proceeds to fall on his feet to worship. To which the angel says something very interesting in verse 10. Stop it. (laughs) Uh, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Okay. Um, Why is this correction given to John and by extension to us? And what are we being cautioned against here? Let's just start at the most basic level, okay? Just take this for at its face value. What we can draw from this most immediately is there is a way to do worship wrongly to which the messenger from God says, you must not do that. And then there's worshiping God. There's worshiping, and there's worshiping God. Um, There's having this incredibly powerful, moving, religious experience that makes you fall on your knees, and there's worshiping God. That's the face value of this. Somehow, the Apostle John failed to make that distinction, at least for this moment. What exactly was his error? And and the angel gives us a clue. The angel says, you must not do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So John's falling down on his knees, worshiping the angel, and the angel says, I'm just a servant who holds to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, what's the angel saying there? Okay, I'm an angel, literally the messenger. Right? That's what angel means. Jesus is the message. Worship him. I'm just the medium. Jesus is the substance. Worship Jesus. I'm just an instrument. I'm just a voice. Jesus is the truth. Worship Jesus. He's correcting John for mistaking, at least for a moment, right? just for this moment, the incredible experience of worship, right? the heavenly multitude singing hallelujah, with the true object of worship, which is Christ. But put differently, he's correcting him from committing the error of equating the, the, all the beautiful things about and the majestic things about a wedding ceremony and falsely equating that with the person he's marrying. I don't know about you, but I've been to weddings where, and none of this did not happen at your weddings. I've been to weddings where I was more enamored by the festivities around me than truly celebrating the couple that's, that's getting married. Um, I've been to those weddings. And if you were to say that's kind of missing the point, you would be right. Can we do that with worship? Absolutely we can. To worship the experience of worship and, and miss the person, the object of worship. I want to dig into that just a little bit and, and try to give you two practical applications of this just to really consider this. Um, one, more so in the context of our worship and our singing, our liturgy. The other, more so in the context of our just everyday lives, everyday living. I really want to consider this with you because, I mean, it's, I think this interlude, this bridge is given to us for a very intentional purpose. So let's consider this. In the context of our worship, our corporate worship, singing, and our liturgy, it's pretty straightforward. This means we have to put a lot of effort into singing, proclaiming the testimony of Jesus, what he is communicating to us through his words, his life, his death, his resurrection, his gospel, more than communicating to God our testimony. God, here's how I feel about you lately. Is not the essence of worship. That's your testimony. Worship is about holding on to the testimony of Jesus. What is he saying to you? More of his voice, less of ours. That's worship. Him increasing, us decreasing. That's worship. More of what we know of his testimony, less of how we feel about it. 
I may have shared this with you before. Uh, there's a pastor I really respect um, named Alistair Begg. He's a well-known pastor kind of among the, the reform circles. Um, he talks about his experience in visiting a mega church in California while he was on vacation. He just wanted to visit a different church and try something different. And he, he describes how he goes in and there's this five-minute countdown video on the big screen. And when when the when there's 10 seconds left, people start counting down. And then the, when the clock hits zero, the band starts playing. And then the worship leader excitedly comes onto the stage. He comes up to the mic. The very first thing uh, he says to the congregation was this. Hey, how do y'all feel this morning? And there were cheers, applause. And then the band kind of crescendos into playing some really uplifting music. But Alistair Begg was there. And he had one thought basically, and that thought was, if I told you how I really feel this morning, you would barely think I'm a Christian. Don't ask me that question. What kind of a New Testament question is that? How do y'all feel this morning? He says, don't ask me that. Ask me what I know. Ask me what I know. Don't ask me how I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. Ask me about the truthfulness of his testimony that can deal with my soul. That's what I need. And he goes on to say, uh, I got in an argument with someone because they took my parking space. I spilled my coffee. I didn't read my Bible this week. I'm a miserable wretch. And you want me to start with, how do I feel? I feel rotten. That's how I feel. What do you got for me? And so he concludes by saying, this is why what we know to be the truthfulness of the scriptures is what ought to be fueling our hearts and our emotions and leading us. I think he's making the same point the angel is making here, that what you and I need in worship most essentially is the testimony of Jesus. What we know is true of him and his promises and letting that inform what we sing, and even how we feel. To let what we believe about him inform how we feel about him and not the other way around. I feel like God is distant, therefore he must be distant. That doesn't work, does it? I may feel a certain way, but here are the words of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am near you. I'm with you. I am God, Emmanuel. What if you were to conform your worship to what you know and not how you feel? So it's vital that we fill our worship, our liturgy, our songs with the testimony of Christ and not so much the testimony of man. That's I think, the first implication of this. Second, uh, this also has an implication for us in our everyday lives because worship is something we do every moment of every day, right? Hallelujah isn't just something you sing. It's something you live out as well, right? Um, Romans 12.1, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, right? So the other question we can consider here is, how are, how are we able to hold on to the testimony of Christ in our everyday interactions and situations and relationships? What does that look like? 
Well, I think for one, this could look like us living every day, not only believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, but sharing it. Because the gospel is the most important testimony of Jesus, the good news. So in sharing that gospel and living according to the gospel, we, we lift a hallelujah to the Lord. And, and through our worship here, we also hear it again. We gain a deeper understanding of the gospel as well. So that's, that's one example of how we hold on to the testimony of Jesus in our everyday lives, through our worship and also through sharing why we worship with those around us. Another important testimony of Jesus is the testimony of his relationships with other people, with his neighbors as well as his enemies. Uh, we can echo the testimony of Jesus when we love our neighbors as ourselves and when we love our enemies too. Those who know how to sort of reciprocate love back to us and those who have absolutely no clue how to do that. And simply take your love for granted to love them too. If you were to simply right, love those who love you well, right, that's just a testimony of the world. But if you start loving those who really fail to love you well, you then share in the testimony of Christ. That's another way that we lift a hallelujah to the Lord. Another example, and I think the most important one maybe, is that we also share in the testimony of Christ when we hold on to his promises in the midst of our suffering and trial. Holding on to his testimony of his provision, of his comfort, of his healing, of his restoration, of his peace and joy, of his presence. These are all testimonies of Christ. Holding on to these testimonies of Jesus in the midst of our suffering and therefore continuing to lift up to heaven our broken hallelujah. That's how you hold on to the testimony of Jesus in the here and now. I think one in a sense, the mistake that the Apostle John is making here, although it's a very brief and temporary one, right? We want to go easy on him. Uh, he jumped to the heavenly hallelujah and started really reveling in it when he is, in fact, still in a prison cell in Patmos, which isn't all that heavenly of a setting. He got a little ahead of himself, didn't he? He he got into some really heavenly vibes and a bit became a bit overly triumphant with a heavenly multitude when his faith has not yet become sight. When in fact he is still living in a broken world where the people of God are persecuted by the world. And the angel, it's almost like he's correcting him, saying, John, for now, while you're here on this side of heaven, yours is not yet that hallelujah. It's more of a broken one. I think that's why this is here for us, to interrupt the broadcast from heaven for a moment, the heavenly hallelujahs for a moment, so we don't get too ahead of ourselves when we're living in the here and now, still groaning as creation, longing for new creation, like it says in Romans 8. When we're here still seeing through a mirror dimly, not yet face to face, like it says in 1 Corinthians 13. 
We're in spiritual Babylon right now. It's not time for the full feast of the, the, the lamb, the, the marriage supper of the lamb, not yet. And it does not matter if you're in a church building. It does not matter that you are experiencing really extravagant ex- worship. You don't get teleported out of this broken world when you do that. We can sing all day long. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to see you. For now we see through a mirror dimly. And then later face to face. For now, it's going to be incomplete. For now, it's going to be riddled with suffering. For now, it's going to be riddled with trials, with wounds, with scars. For now, your hallelujah is going to be a broken one. But through that, you hold on to the testimony of Jesus, sufficient for you in the here and now. All the promises of God that hold true for you in the here and now, you make that testimony tangible, audible, as you continue to lift up your broken hallelujahs in the here and now. For now, we hold on to 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. Though we do not see him, we lift up our broken hallelujahs in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our worries and fears, in the midst of broken relationships, physical pain, financial hardships, emotional burdens, mental burdens, in the midst of our traumas, deep-seated wounds, we lift up our broken hallelujahs, and through it we announce, we proclaim the testimonies of Jesus. Maybe you were taught this, I don't know, but I think I was, this kind of seeped into my upbringing. So raised to think perhaps my hallelujah right now in the here and now must be happy, must always be emotionally uplifting, uh, musically so gratifying, and just always take you to the next spiritual high that only gets better and better with the next service or the next album or whatever. That is false. That is a false expectation in worship. The truth is that your your most God-honoring, heartfelt, and even emotionally authentic hallelujah can be born out of your pain, your lament, your still recovering wounds. And it can be rather dismissive of your experience and others' people experience, to say that our hallelujahs must be more pleasant, more attractive in its sound, more practice and more rehearsed. There's something dismissive of this world when we make our hallelujahs so pristine. For now, for now, we, we let out a groaning kind of hallelujah, a broken hallelujah. And I hope that our worship here will be more like that because that's the kind of worship we do see through the saints of the Bible. 
I hope we will worship like them. I hope we will worship like Job. I hope we will worship like Joseph. I hope we will worship like David in the wilderness, like Paul in prison, like John in prison. I hope we will sing our hallelujahs like them. And guys, where are they now? Where are these saints now? At the throne of God, singing a perfected, glorified hallelujah. That's where we're headed to. We are invited to the the wedding of the Lamb as well. But for now, we worship God with our broken hallelujahs. And we hold on to the testimony of Jesus through our singing and through our way of living. There's hope. There's really awesome, awe-inspiring, make-you-want-to-fall-on-your-knees kind of hope given to us when we consider heaven. And then when we get to a point where we're a little overly indulging in that and a bit too detached from our present reality, the voice of God tells us, hold on, okay, zoom out. Consider where you are now and worship from where you are now. And I hope that encourages you because that means God really does delight in your worship even when you're not all that uplifted in your feelings or um, when the when the leader asks you, how do y'all feel this morning? Your answer is, I feel kind of rotten and miserable. That does not compromise the quality of your worship. Why? Because on this side of heaven, God asks us to hold on to the testimony of Jesus, and that's enough. That's sufficient enough for God to delight in our worship. Let's hold on to that, and let's lift up to God a worship that is truly acceptable and pleasing to Him. Let's pray. Our uh, gracious God, um, we thank you for this vision once again, and we thank you for your calls to consider um, the the future heavenly hallelujah that we will be singing with the multitudes and just giving us so much hope in that and a desire to to long for that. But also we thank you for the the cautionary note to, to know where we are currently, that the new Jerusalem is not yet here, that we still live in the wilderness called Babylon and and therefore, we, we need to uh, cling to you more desperately, uh, rely on your daily mercies, and that we can not go a day without you, a moment, really, without your mercies. So, Lord, um, remind us of just our need of you uh, every hour of every day. And, and, Lord, help us to hold fast to your testimonies uh, of your uh, presence with us, of your faithfulness to us, of your steadfast love towards us. Uh, so that, Lord, whenever we think of your testimony, we will be encouraged. Uh, So turn our eyes to Jesus and help us look full into his face and tune our ears to his voice. And we pray that all the the things in this life will grow dim and, and fade away in the light of his glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.